You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. 1 Peter 1, we'll take our reading from there today, taking a break from our John series. And next week, I believe, uh, Rick has uh, volunteered to speak to us, so uh, Lord willing, two weeks hence, we'll be back to John. Today, from 1 Peter chapter 1, the power of the resurrection, and it causes us to have a living hope through it. So, that powerful resurrection and the living hope that we have as a result. Let's read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. This meeting, or excuse me, this reading... This reading summarizes and reminds us of the testimony that we believed and its effects on us. Of course, as the world around celebrates Easter today, and I'm glad that they do take a week to do that, we understand that it's every Sunday to be a Resurrection Sunday that every Lord's Day is one of remembrance and of celebration, of a solemn yet joyful observance, being reminded of the blessings we've received, coming together to speak words to renew our hope and to strengthen us in the assurance of the things we have in the Lord and the comfort that is there in the sure and certain hope of the promises yet to come all guaranteed by the resurrection of Christ. This text speaks of the fact that it was by his great mercy that we have all of these things. This text began with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who of course is our Father as well. It's him who we bless. It's he who deserves the blessing, the honor, and the glory. Because here he has given us, as mentioned in this text, some of the things that answers to our deepest needs. The living hope. We live in a dying world. We live in a world where uh, scientists tell us by the second law of thermodynamics or the laws of conservation of energy that everything is spinning uh, toward entropy where without, uh, you know, is in every interaction some bit is lost. It's all spinning. It'll all be just a dark gray equilibrium. We see morally in the world where without renewal and the hope of the gospel, men continue on in evil. 
We see so many evils being done that we decide we don't want to watch the news anymore or turn on social media or read the paper or just about anything else. And we think, well, where is the hope? Well, it is God giving us an answer here to our needs of these existential questions through the power of the resurrection. It's the resurrection that proves that evil does not permanently conquer. Because without the hope of resurrection, who would we think would win? Just by observance alone. Would we think that evil will win and triumph in this world or good? And if you think it's good, i got a few places to take you. i got a few more things to show you. But it's by the power of the resurrection we believe that evil does not ultimately and fully conquer. And so when we have these questions of existence, and whether we had them in our youth, as sophomoric philosophical discussions, or whether we have them as nagging questions as to meaning and purpose in the back of our minds through our day, as we have them as those lingering questions that keep us up late at night, or we've made it through the night and now we've come to the morning and it's time to get up and we need a reason to go on and start anew. Questions of purpose, questions of meaning, questions of life, questions of death. What's the answer? What's the hope? Well, the hope is that God in his great mercy has given us reason to go on. Job asked so very long ago, if a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle, I'll wait till my change comes. Before the revelation of Christ, the faithful had to ask, will we live again? That is a question now answered. That is a question now put to rest. We know by faith because we have seen one who has done it. Some say, yeah, but you believe in the impossible. Nobody comes back from the dead. It's really impossible. And we say, yes, we know it is. That's why we celebrate it. Because it did happen. The impossible did occur. And so, yes, I still have a struggle until my change comes. I still might face a great amount of fear getting ready for that great crossing over. But I have hope in Christ to do it. We think about this from Hebrews 2. Again, trying to struggle and answer these questions of life and existence without the resurrection. Hebrews 2 said, in verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. For surely he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the children of Abraham. Imagine before the resurrection facing these questions. Imagine before the resurrection and the assurance of salvation facing the question of sin. Imagine facing the question of purpose without the hope of heaven. And so death and the fear of death, the Hebrew writer said that had kept people subject to slavery. It was, it still is, one of Satan's great powers. But blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who by his great mercy has now shown us the way out, has now delivered us from death, 
through the power of the one that death could not contain. And so now we have a salvation ready for us. As again we read, it said in verse 1, it should be verse 3 of 1 Peter 1, it said, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's for a living hope to a salvation ready, verse 5, to be revealed at the last time. And so we've got it now in promise. We've been promised salvation. We've been promised the resurrection. And it is ready to be revealed. It's ready to be shown. There's no hindrance that keeps it from being shown and fulfilled. All the purpose and power and plan is there. There's a number of things in this life I might want to do from time to time, but I'm hindered by various things. I don't have the power. I don't have the budget. I don't have the time. I don't have the knowledge. I don't have the cooperation. I don't have so many things. I haven't done the background work. I haven't set it up. Oh, I'd like to do it, but there's a thousand things that keep me from it. But of this salvation, it's ready. It's ready. It's all there. When Jesus was on the cross, he was able to say at the end, it's finished. It's done. And so there remains so little left to do on the behalf of God for our sake. Because he's done it. He's already done his part. And so what are we waiting on now? Well, Second Peter 3, we're waiting on the patience of God. We regard his patience to be our salvation because he is waiting for us to take advantage of that which he gave us. Now, sometimes we do wonder why God is so patient when so many things are so wrong. But even in the days of Noah, which is so far beyond bad uh, of today, it appears to me from the descriptions of the Holy Record, God waited for them a century, giving time for salvation, giving time. What does God give us? He gives us time. He so often gives us time. And what do we do with that time? Well, the salvation is ready, and so we tell people it's ready. Revelation 23, excuse me, 22. That would be interesting if it was Revelation 23. Revelation 22 and 17. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take of the water without cost. And so you've got people saying, come. You've got people who are able to come. That God keeps it open. And ready. He keeps it in a constant state of readiness for us and for our salvation. This last week I saw some progressive scholars. And they were saying that the, uh, the key to interpretation of the New Testament. Now I don't agree with their interpretation of the New Testament. This may be why. But the key to the interpretation of the New Testament was the, was the understanding that all the New Testament writers believed in the imminent eschaton. They're theologians, so they get to use big words. They, they believed in the immediate return of Christ. They thought Christ was coming not in millennia, as we've now had two millennia since the time of Christ. They thought Christ's return was not in, the, in two centuries. They thought Christ's uh, uh, return was not going to be in two decades. 
but that the New Testament writers wrote as though they really believed the New Te- that, that Christ was going to come within the next couple of years. Now, I find that to be eminently interesting for a couple of reasons. One, it's very wrong. But two, the, the New Testament was written over a period of 70 years. So I wonder in which two-year period of the writing of his books they thought it was going to come. But it wasn't in Paul and Peter and the others that they thought that Jesus was coming back right now. There are things that would give you reason to think that, like James saying, you know, the judge is at the door and the like. But that they thought he was really and fully and truly coming. And it is imminent in the sense of all things are ready, even if it wasn't imminent in the sense of the calendar. In importance and immediacy, it's, it's imminent. But in chronology, it might not be. And in chronology, what changes if it's two years or two millennia? See, it's a salvation ready, but it has been ready for a long time. And so, no, I don't think that was the key to understanding all the New Testament books. But uh, uh, once some of these scholars get an idea, they filter everything through that one idea. And that is always dangerous. Even just this last week on a totally different topic with not theological liberals, but some brethren. I was having a study and discussion with a brother. And the problem with the position that some of the brethren were taking in this, in this particular conversation was they had one passage and filtered everything through that one passage when there were other passages that they should have used as well to illustrate the point. So no, there's never a single filter. There's never a single key to it all. But what there is, is for us, a salvation that's, that's ready. And the fact that it's been ready for a very long time does not mean it's any less ready or any more ready at any one particular time. No, like, like Paul said to the Corinthians, He said, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Quoting Isaiah, at the acceptable time I listened to you on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That doesn't mean that Christ is coming tomorrow or coming today, but that means you need to repent today and you need to take advantage of salvation today. You need to accept these things today. It's ready for you. Be ready for it. And this is already in this great help of God to answer the deepest needs we have, again, is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we need to realize, I'll put them both up, its reality and its nature. The entire preaching of the gospel, all its force and efficacy, and anything that it offers, and all its claims, which we know that are true, everything that it says about Jesus and about the world, all of the reality and the hope that it brings and the clarity to understand the world is based on the fact that Jesus really and actually, physically and bodily, came out of the grave. Romans 1.4, he's proven to be the Son of God with power through the resurrection. It is the resurrection that fulfills all the promises. It is the resurrection that the apostles preached. 
It is, in all things, the center of our belief. And it is a historical fact. In Acts chapter 1, the reality of it, that he really did come from the dead. Acts 1 verse 1, the first account I composed Theophilus to write about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he'd chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Luke says, I'm writing you this second volume based on what was in the first, that Jesus didn't set all those things, that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering. And Luke, in the two volumes of his history, the history of Jesus' life on earth and the history of the church after, in the book of Luke and the book of Acts, Luke is the greatest historian who ever lived. Gives us the greatest histories ever written based on the most real thing that ever occurred. This Greek doctor, a man born and raised in paganism, he came to believe that this Jewish man was the Messiah and the Son of God and came to be raised from the dead as proof of it all. Luke was as modern, a skeptical, as uh, intellectual, as a thinking a person probably more so than any of us. But he came to know and believe the gospel. And this is not anti-historical. It's the guy that wrote all that down that really starts modern history. Starts writing modern histories. No, this is real. Again, yes, as someone says, but it's impossible. Yes, that's why we celebrate it. Because God did the impossible through Jesus Christ. And as Luke said, there were many convincing proofs over many days. And one of the reasons why we can believe this so much is because it was so well predicted. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul, a man who was an enemy of this idea, an enemy of the people who believed this idea, a man of whom the resurrected man had not appeared to him as he was going to persecute his followers, he certainly probably would have died uh, cursing the name of Jesus and being a curse to his followers. It's this man who was convinced and then said this, 1 Corinthians 15, 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you've received, and which also you stand, but which also you're saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered this to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So I received it, and it's according to scriptures. It's both. God told me himself, and God told me in the scripture. What did I learn from those two two ways of learning? That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. That he appeared to Cephas and the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at once, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born... He appeared to me. Yeah, he appeared to me and he taught me these things. He told me these things. This is the absolute reality. A resurrectionless gospel is not the gospel. 
A resurrectionless gospel is, as Paul would describe in this chapter, a miserable thing. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. If Christ has not been raised and our preaching is vain, your faith is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God who te- because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he didn't raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. If Christ is not raised, there is no gospel. He said, we're of all men most pitied or most miserable if we've actually believed this foolishness. Except it's not foolishness, it's true. So either it's of God, of the scriptures, it's by faith and it's saving and it's forgiving, or it's a myth and a fable, and it's a terrible tragic thing to tell people you've been forgiven when you're not. And for us to dedicate our life to this and be persecuted for it, that would have been just pointless. But know in fact it is real. And because it's real, it's effective. It's conquering. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, before the resurrection, as we studied this morning in class, the apostles confessed him as Messiah. So he was Jesus Christ. But when the resurrection came, and he's proven to be the Son of God with power, he then wears another title, which is Lord. He is the Lord because he has been raised. He would say in the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. So go and tell everybody. Make them my disciples. Teach them all that I've commanded and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Go because I'm the Lord. I'm in charge. Or in Acts chapter 2, Peter argues it this way. This Jesus Christ, God raised up. This Jesus God raised to which we're all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured forth that which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended to heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. So because of the resurrection, he is the Lord and Christ. He is proven to be the Messiah. There were certain prophecies about the Messiah. One of them was that you are my son, I have begotten you. That's in Psalm 2. It's quoted in Acts 13, applied to the resurrection. Here at Psalm 110, that the, the Christ is elevated to the throne with God. And God says, sit here and reign and rule with me. The reason is because he's resurrected. How do we know somebody who walked on this earth sits on the throne of heaven? Because he walked on this earth, he was put into the grave, which all men on this earth will go to, and on his own he came out of it with the power of God. And so by the preaching of these facts, many were convicted and many were converted and many were baptized in his name and they were added to the church and they began a new participation in this living hope which God brought about through Jesus Christ and so now we come to as Peter wrote here again in 1 Peter chapter 1 
We come to our participation. We come to our part in this. That he's allowed us to be in this. He is our Lord, Jesus Christ. He isn't just the Lord. Yes, he is the Lord. Right? There, there's, there's certainly a sense in which he is the Lord of creation. He, he is, you know, the, the cattle on a thousand hills are his. He's the Lord of this church, but he's also the Lord of that street out there, isn't he? We're at the corner of 4th and Arkansas. Which way would we go to find the place where Jesus is in charge? Whether we go on 4th or whether we go on Arkansas, Jesus is the Lord of Arkansas. He's the Lord of 4th, isn't he? He's the Lord of Mulvane. He is, isn't he? He's the Lord of Sedgwick County. I'm sorry, we're in Sumner County. He's the Lord here too. He's the Lord over in Cowley County, isn't he, Matt? He's the Lord over there. He's the Lord even in Butler County. He's the Lord everywhere. He's the Lord here in Kansas. He's even the Lord of Oklahoma and those denigrates down there in Texas. He's the Lord of all of them. He's the Lord of the United States. He's the Lord of the whole thing. But it's not just he is the Lord of the whole thing. He's our Lord. He's my Lord. And here again, as we read from 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, there's a lot of people out there he's the Lord of, but they don't know it. Or they rebel against it. They act like he's not. He's our Lord because we are with him willing participants in this. That God by his great mercy has brought us in and brought us along. He has caused us, it says, who by his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Let's put both those up there. This is our participation. Born again to a living hope. This is our stake in it. That we have been invited to participate into this reality. Jesus came always that he might have a kingdom where people who were born again would come into it and serve God with and through him. Like he said to Nicodemus way back in John 3. John 3, 3. Truly I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Then he would say again to Nicodemus, do not be amazed when he said, I say you must be born again. Well, how do I do that? What's that about? And then I get over here to Peter and he says, he's done that. He's caused us to be born again. So we can be in his kingdom. That we can participate in it. And again, how was that? Well, it's through the power of the resurrection. Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's in the power of the resurrection he was declared to be the only begotten son of God. It's in the power of the resurrection that we can be born again. It just as grace is through faith in Ephesians 2, the new birth is through the resurrection here in 1 Peter. So we have 1 Peter 3.21 corresponding to that. Baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God of a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we take out the parenthetical note about the nature of baptism not being a physical removal of dirt, but a a thing of conscience, we would read this without the parenthetical, baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so here's our hope. Here's our participation. Here's our spot in it. 
by this resurrection, we get to be born again. And when we're born again by one and in one who ever lives, well, then what is our hope in him? It's a living hope, right? It's a living hope. Before Jesus died, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. You know, normally, just before you die, you don't go to prepare a place for anything. People start making your funeral arrangements, right? People start making arrangements where we're going to cart you to. But here, when he is gone, his preparation is to go and prepare a place to receive you to myself, he says, John 14, 3. That where I am, there you may be also. Yeah, That's a whole different world of preparation in a whole different world. That in death, he went to prepare a place for us. And so, we have it summarized by the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 6.14, now God will not only raise, has not only raised the Lord, but he will also raise us up through his power. And so our hope in baptism now, and our hope in salvation now, and all that goes with it, and our hope in the afterlife, is all in the power of the resurrection. If there is no resurrection for us to remember, to believe in and commemorate, there is no new life and there is no living hope. But there is. Because he did. And so it says in this text, there is an inheritance reserved. He says, you will obtain an inheritance, verse 4, imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. There's a place in heaven with your name on it. If your name is united with his name, it's imperishable. It's undefiled. You think about the nicest, the cleanest, the purest, the holiest of places, pristinest places, relationships, and things on earth. And what what we can't do to end them, to defile them, to despoil them, to mess them up. But here's an inheritance that's subject to none of that. Because in some ways, thankfully, it's not within our reach. But it's fully in his guard. It's under his protection. It's where we as flesh and blood can't get to it because man is flesh and blood. What do we not mess up? You think about this again from John 14. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe in me also. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it weren't so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may also be. We have a hymn. It's not one of my favorites, but we have a hymn that we're all familiar with. There's a mansion now empty just waiting for me. Well, There's a home with God. And I suppose anything with God compared to anything we've got, yes, Mansion might be an apt description. But it's reserved in heaven. I'm not sure if it's empty. I, I think they meant empty in the sense of there's room for me to go in. Not in the sense of it's totally unoccupied. But there is a real reserved place that's really reserved for us who's with him. There's a great place with God waiting that he has said is ours 
If what? Well, if we go under his protection by, verse 5, the power of God through faith. Again, it's a reserved inheritance. It says it's protected by the power of God through faith. Just as baptism was through the resurrection and just as salvation is grace through faith, here it is, the power of God for us through faith. Again, verse 5, this is for us who are protected by the power of God, the same power that raised Jesus, that same reality, the power of God through faith, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed the last time. Protected there, American standard is guarded. In the King James, it's kept. It is protected for us. It is reserved for us. It's the same power of God working for us and with us through faith as is the power that raised Jesus. Talking about that power again, John 14, 19. After a little while, the world will behold me, Jesus said no more. But you will behold me because I live, you shall live also. Because I live, you will live. And so again, here is this living hope of ours that is by the power of the resurrection. As it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 14, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us through his power. And again, what's our connection? What's, what's our entry into this? It's the power of faith. How is it that God has invited us to be part of this? What he's done through Jesus, our Lord. He's asked us to believe in him. Believing, have life in his name. He's asked us to trust in him who revealed God to us and showed us all these things. And so, the resurrection, the great power of God, what are you asked to do? Believe it. Trust in it. And come to follow the Lord and Savior of us all. With that, then we close. I ask this morning if you need to come confess your faith so as to be united with Christ and by baptism into his death from which he rose in the power of life and you'll rise to walk in newness of life. Or if you need to confess sin to return, we'll offer the invitation as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Malvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at malvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.